Hi, it's Paul Camillos. Welcome to Series 5 of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin as we talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. This marks the start of our fourth year of covering women's hoops and women in hoops and throughout the series we welcome experts like Lyndon Moore from New Zealand and other special guests from across the world to get a global picture of the game. During this series, we'll take a closer look at the grassroots and the passionate people at the community level. And of course, the 30th edition of the FIBA Women's Asia Cup was recently held in Sydney, where the Opals took bronze and Asia's best players put on a show. Hit that subscribe button and to show your support, rate and leave us a review on iTunes so we reach more listeners. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I would argue like not even more popular, but just finally the people that have the power of finally like letting, like recognizing that those stories can sell and do sell and there is an audience for them. So finally putting a bit more investment into those places. Like it's a really exciting time. Joining us is athlete and artist Sarade Taylor, who is flourishing in her new pathway at the AFLW after being in a holding pattern as a development player in the WNBL for a few years. Recently signed with the Melbourne Demons, she's grateful to be in a progressive league that's leading the way in athlete development on and off the field. But Sarade has another passion, and it's close to my heart. She's a writer and has always wanted to be one. She's in the process of having her debut novel published, highlighting the increasing opportunities for female athletes to pursue creative dreams alongside their athletic careers and to live more meaningful lives. Sarade's talent comes at an ideal time as interest in marketability for stories on female athletes written by female athletes is growing. No stranger to setbacks, we're grateful to Sarade for sharing the difficulties in her professional sporting journey and the tough economic realities, but it's that vulnerability and experience that will be a treasure trove for her written work, which we can't wait to read. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me, my co-host Jacinta Govind, and joining us today... We have Sarade Taylor. Sarade, mm. welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off with a bit of an introduction on you, just mm -hmm. because you've been around the WNBL and you're in the AFLW and as a cross-code player, and also you've got a few other things that are going on in the background as well. So let's get a bit of a holistic overview of what you do and what you're up to. Okay, a holistic overview. Let me give it my best crack. Um, so I was always a basketballer. I played, started playing basketball when I was about five years old, I'd say. Played all my juniors into senior basketball. Was involved at WNBL level for six years. I was a development player with the Flyers franchise. So three years with the Dandenong Rangers and then three years with the Southside Flyers. I was really lucky to get an opportunity 
at AFLW last year when I was signed to the Richmond Tigers and I became a cross-code athlete, which everyone loves to call them. That's the label they always seem to use. Um, and now I'm like, yeah, equally as lucky to be signed to the Melbourne Demons at AFLW again. So that's in a very succinct <laughs> couple of sentences. It's been a wild old ride. Um, but in terms of the sporting journey, that's probably that's that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious. Uh-huh. Why? Why? I will get back to basketball, but why? You know, the move to AFLW. Mm-hmm. That's a complex question. It's like, how long do we have on this podcast? <laughs> um, and the succinct answer that I just gave, obviously, probably navigates around all of the various failures and sort of heartbreaks I experienced through my sporting journey um, so far. The most concise answer as to why I moved to AFLW, I would say opportunity. I'd also say player investment and potential career sustainability slash viability, probably the biggest one. Yeah, like, again, very complicated question. I'd need a long time to really analyse, but that's probably in the in the most concise way I can put it. Did you feel that they were the two primary opportunities AFLW could offer you that WNBL perhaps couldn't? It was more like I had never considered even being a cross-code athlete. I had quite a few friends who were at AFLW and if not at that level, like playing footy and just absolutely adoring it. And I guess the pathway that was there and the potential to be playing at a professional level. And I didn't even um, indulge in that thought because for me, I always wanted to be a WNBL player and I always really thought I was going to be. Um, So it was less even the big opportunity that AFLW offered and more just an opportunity in general. Yeah, (laughs) if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, part of what makes me curious is there's similarities between the sports in terms of skill, mm-hmm. but they're really different. Absolutely. So yeah. how did you find converting from basketball to AFLW? Yeah, you're exactly right. There is a big difference. There's a lot of similarities in terms of like footwork and physicality, but the added level of physicality is obviously the spontaneity of that physicality and the absolute the tackling, um, which is like full body contact as opposed to basketball, where there's obviously a line. I've been so lucky first with Richmond and now with Melbourne to just be and Port Melbourne at VFLW level, just feel really, really invested in and have coaches so generously give up their time to really make that transition as smooth as possible. Um, and that's probably the biggest difference I've found participating in both the National League of Basketball and the National League at football level is that investment in athletes and the real commitment to an athlete's growth when potential is recognised. And uh, it's interesting, you mentioned the physicality because on paper for me that's probably one of the easiest transferable skills between basketball and mm-hmm. AFLW. Um but, yeah, not really considering the spontaneity of physicality in <laughs> AFLW because when you put it that way, it makes you think that you expect physicality in basketball but only at certain times, like when you're pursuing a rebound or when you're guarding the ball and you're using your body to, like, stop a drive. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of expected, right? But in AFLW, it's, it's a free-for-all. 
<laughs> Absolutely. A free-for-all and from every direction and at any time and, yeah, different levels of um, strength and force and a lot more ground activity, a lot more times finding yourself on the grass. So, yeah, that is probably the biggest adjustment. But at the end of the day, it's still chasing the ball. Like the goal's the same. Get that ball, secure the ball, keep it away from your opponent. <laughs> very, very similar, strangely enough, team sport, both ball sports. The ball shape's completely different though. Like even <laughs> at elementary school or mm -hmm. like at uni and you'd go and play like Resi's touch footy and you keep yeah. dropping a pass and they're like, don't you play basketball? It's like the ball shape is completely yeah. different because my brain Absolutely. has been trained for you know, almost 20 years by the time I first played resi sport to catch a round ball. I can't I untrain that in a night. It's so funny. It's so true. And I feel like the way the ball moves through the air because of its different shape is really different too. And that's been an adjustment in terms of reading how quickly it falls, how much further it goes or how short it drops. Yeah, fun, fun times for my poor little brain to try and wrap itself around. Not only that. but And even the bounce is unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I don't attempt that as of yet. <laughs> I just, just kind of, you know, tuck it under an arm and try not to get pummeled into the soil at this point. That's, that's a tick off my list. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the irregular bounce of the ball must make it really hard because, you know, you've, you've learnt basketballs bounce in a certain way and mm -hmm. the AFL ball, it's like it hits and who knows where it's going to end up. Yeah, absolutely. You're really, at least when I'm doing it, hoping for the best. Um, but the other, like the women athletes who are playing footy, like, yeah, they know what they're doing. So I, I just watch on in awe and practice privately when no one's around <laughs> and summon the courage to eventually do it in a training session or in a game. <laughs> you indicated as well some of the different opportunities uh, now that you're in the AFLW space. Mm -hmm. Are you able to tell us a bit more about those opportunities? Are there opportunities in a way that AFLW provide, you know, a way for females to stay involved in the sport past playing or you know, do they? How do they look after you as a person when you're not being an athlete? Yeah, it that like I would say the AFLW system, the way it's currently set up, is very progressive compared to other women's sports, like women's sporting professional leagues, in the sense of it really is a lot more holistic. And because they're trying really hard, the Players Association with the AFL to move into that le legitimately full-time sport and career, it's not just on the court, on the field, and it's not just in the playing season. And it's like it's pre-season, but it's also pre-pre-season. It's also pre-pre-pre-season. It really is that whole yearly thing. And I think that as like the most fundamental opportunity <laughs> outside the sport is probably the most helpful when you're ambitious as an athlete and you're trying to make it work. So more sustainable in that sense where your kind of calendar year is more covered rather than having to rely on going from season to season like a basketball athlete perhaps would be required to. It's really difficult as a basketball athlete to be, sometimes you're playing within like three different seasons in a year. 
like in three different teams. If you go from an NBL one season into a WNBL season into the front end of another NBL one season, there's not really any continuity unless you're lucky and you're potentially at a We're obviously in um, being Melbourne and so it's like talking interstate anywhere that's not here and there might be an association between an NBL one team and a WNBL team. But here there really isn't that connection. So once you're out of the WNBL season, it's a bit of a good luck. Hopefully if you're lucky, we might see you next season. And there's not that much communication in between then. So you're really trying to access resources on your own, pay for resources on your own, and meanwhile stay fit enough and strong enough and skilled enough to be asked back into that WNBL program. I'm kind of curious about some stuff in that one. Yeah. So I'm trying to be diplomatic as well. I'm like, I hope I'm not sounding <laughs> I hope I'm not sounding too too harsh or too whingy. Um it's like it's relatively objective, I would claim. No, 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 I, I don't disagree with anything you've just said. I'm actually really curious about the, the thing in there that got me really surprised was the between the end of the season and I'm guessing when you're starting to get to the front end of the next WNBL season. Mm-hmm. If I've interpreted what you've said correctly, yeah. Yeah. it's kind of radio silence for a while, which really surprises me because I would have thought there'd be more communication going on between the club and the player. I think every athlete's journey is different and everyone's experience is probably slightly different in that space as well. Talking from my perspective and also a lot of other athletes I know share a very similar in a similar position, I'd say, with probably a similar level of status if we're looking within the basketball professional sporting hierarchy, there is often a real chasm in communication, which I think is detrimental to the league in general because that pathway is not consolidated. And then you do see athletes with no choice but to leave. Hmm. And and that kind of leads into the next thing that I wanted us to talk about, which is Mm -hmm. the career path and Mm -hmm. the earnings and what you've got to do day to day to keep, you know, the doors open and the lights on, work, study, how does all that get juggled? And, like, how did you juggle it? I'm like, how political do I want to get? (laughs) I would say (laughs) the way the system currently is is inherently classist because the only reason I was able to be a development player for six years is because I live at home with my parents. And if I was not doing that and if I was having to pay rent and if I was having to work a nine-to-five job instead of just a part-time job, I would not have been able to do it. And therefore the sport is losing all of those athletes who are potentially good enough to be WNBL players, but just through sheer luck in the way the lottery works in life and not in the position to do so. No, I think that's a really fair point. And I think it's a really uh, intelligent and fresh perspective on the way of seeing that because we know of a few athletes who are always on the cusp of being DPs or have been offered more DP roles with one club or various clubs. That would be a great pathway for them to start their WNBL career. Mm -hmm. But one close friend in particular had that same opportunity come up and she just was just like, I just physically couldn't do it. I just physically couldn't, you know, be able to work an amount of hours, put in the, the level at a DP. And as you know, 
when you're a DP, you have to do even more work because you want to try and put yourself in the best position for a roster spot next season. Yeah. So that's all the extra. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just kind of needed a break from that grind. Yeah, and I think that like there are a lot of stories like that. There are players that either can do it and have done it for like a year or a couple of years or however many years, and then some players who don't even like aren't even really able to access the opportunity the first time it comes around because they've come out of school straight into a full time job or their study and their work just with the hours. I think the WNBL with some teams has moved to daytime training in an effort to be more professional but you can't be professional without the wage and the resource meeting it first otherwise you're sort of undermining someone's ability to survive in this financial climate slash world yeah hellhole yeah yeah that 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 too that too i can say it i'm a a co-host i can say it you don't need to feels like you can say it because you're the guest you've been polite but financial hellhole the current economic climate is how i would describe it yeah yes to me it seems like it would be really tough and a lot of athletes, I'm guessing, are just looking at it and going, you know what, I, I either I've got to go and look at a, a, another sport like AFLW and try for that mm-hmm. or I'm out, I'm going to go do something else. Mm-hmm. And that has another effect, which is people will be looking at basketball and going, well, hang on a minute, if this is what's happening, is that really a pathway I want to try and pursue? Yeah, uh, like, and the WBL, for anyone who loves basketball, for any little girl or child growing up playing basketball, the WBL is like the highest honour. Like, it's the highest accolade. It's what you're striving for and it's what you'd do anything for. Like, it's not even necessarily about the money until it becomes crunch time and you literally can't survive anymore. Like, I think, especially as female athletes, there is such a level of gratitude that it becomes almost dangerous because we're so programmed to be so thankful that we will essentially sacrifice our own needs to try and maintain or look after, essentially, the WNBL. And I think that's happened for a a long time and therefore I am always indebted to all of the athletes who've come before and who are still in the WBL, some of the best athletes in the whole entire world who just have never received the recognition that they deserve. And that attitude too, if you want to keep, you know, uh, touching into the political and um, socialist side of things too, that attitude of being grateful of playing WNBL despite being a professional league without having all of the all the, I guess, not expected but standard levels of professionalism that you see in, in particularly men's sport is such an inherently female attitude to have. I should be grateful that I get to play professional sport. And I think, like you said, the players before us, just like the suffragettes before us, have mm-hmm. are the ones that have created that pathway for us to be in this position. But now we have to start turning the tide and thinking, you know, if this is truly going to be professional, we have to start changing the attitudes that this is an actual job. It's not something that we like to do as a hobby all the time and think, oh, hey, I can make money out of this hobby. This is a job and we should be paid a salary like any other job. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Now let's move off of basketball for a little bit onto some okay. other stuff. We will come back to basketball. <laughs> but I, I also want to talk about the fact that you've done stuff completely unrelated to sport. 
mm. um, you know, you've had a novel picked up by a publisher. Mm. So do you yeah. want to tell us a little bit about that? So when I, I describe it the same, like when I was eight years old, all I wanted, I decided I wanted to be a WNBL player and I wanted to be an author. I've always, always wanted to write books. I've loved reading and I loved writing from a really young age. And I, after high school, I studied screenwriting at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is not <laughs> novel writing, but it is adjacent in the creative writing space. And I'm very grateful for my time there because it definitely equipped me with a different set of tools I probably would not have got if I had have just studied prose writing. So it was a really interesting sort of expansion of my artistic practice. And then COVID happened pretty much as I, I think I graduated uni when I was in the hub. So when I was in 2020, when we were all in far north Queensland during that season and the conclude, like my graduation was essentially, we just shut our laptops down and we said, all right, see you later. No more Zoom was the really theatrical way, conclusion to my tertiary education. And then from there, I basically just tried to write and I submitted as much as I could to as many places as I could. And I just had rejection after rejection come in for pretty much a whole year, I would say. Like I didn't really have any success for a whole year. And I had to probably like, I wrote a little essay, just about 111 rejections because like, I kept count in this document where I submitted and I'd cross them off for like a black line every time I had an email back saying, oh, unfortunately, thanks so much for submitting, but unfortunately, blah, 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 blah. Coming through it every time during the during when I'm brushing my teeth, first thing when I wake up, there's always an email saying, Sarade, thanks, but no thank you. And then what happened? I was really lucky pretty much this time a year ago, maybe a little bit earlier. I won a writing competition and then the rest is history. So that is <laughs> from there, it definitely, yeah, it changed quite drastically. And that's where the next chapter or the real story began. Yeah, that's when all the, the really boring stuff about all of the failures and the bleak outcomes, finally we the trajectory went upwards a little bit. It spiked positively. So did you graduate uni and win a WNBL championship in the same year? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, that's I don't, awesome. Uh, thank you. I, it's like, and that's like a political question almost itself. Like I don't know if I claim the like winning as a development player. Like it's a complicated kind of position to be in, but I was part of the group that won the 2020 hub season championship. So, yes, technically you are correct. That's a big year. That's yeah. uh, that's huge. some of the most successful outcomes of a very <laughs> bleak time for the world in the COVID lockdown. Yeah, it yeah. was it was a very big year. And I think yeah, because it was straight into more COVID lockdown and more sort of pandemic behaviours, it felt very like time warped and it felt very strange and very long. And it made that period of kind of post-graduation feel very empty and filled at the same time with all of those like emails coming through and nothing really happening because you graduate and you have so much excitement for what's next and obviously I wanted to be a novelist and I was maybe hoping to move into a television room and start writing a television series or something and it was just like yes it was quite quite quiet I would describe but I guess looking on reflection yes coming out of the WNBL program or the WNBL season and then also having graduated we ticked them off we ticked them off in retrospect 
Well, for what it's worth, now is a good time to be writing spec scripts. Mm, is that right? Yeah. Writer strike. Oh, yeah. Far out. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so sorry to my parents. Choosing two such stable careers, they really, <laughs> they're grateful. The female athlete and the artist, they love it. They love it for me. Put me through how many years of schooling just for me to be fraught with financial danger for all the rest of my life. Oh. Well, the last time they had a big writer strike, the market opened up for spec scripts. Wow, that's so interesting. Because all those guys who were normally in the writer's room for a TV show had yeah. nothing to do. Yeah. So they were writing their own, they were writing spec stuff. Yeah, that's wild. It's so funny. Yeah, the writing industry itself as well, like you could have a whole conversation, like during even COVID, what the kind of rights that artists had in this country. But I won't <laughs> take off too much. <laughs> Oh, that's another political episode for another time. <laughs> it, is, it, is. it is. I'll say it. We'll save it. But I kind of am curious about how you see or do you see potential for more stories around w women's sports, given that women's sports are starting to become more popular and be more widely accepted? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. And I would argue, like, not even more popular, but just finally the people that have the power of finally like letting, like recognising that those stories can sell and do sell and there is an audience for them. So finally putting a bit more investment into those places. Like it's a really exciting time. I reckon since I was 15, I was trying to use the angle like, oh, I play sport and I write and there's not really any stories about female athletes. Please publish my things, publish my writing. But it's funny how timing works. Obviously, we're like, what, eight years down the track and now it's they're like, yes, wow, actually, you are. That's right. Look at you. So I definitely think it's really cool to, and there's so many sort of, different perspectives that are finally being shared with a more mainstream audience and that is so much momentum. So I think for all sporting leagues, it's an exciting time on top of, like, creatively speaking. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for storytelling around the sports to get the message out beyond just the, you know, just the usual reporting of results and forecasts and this player did this and they hit that milestone, the ability to be able to build stories that, that can bring people in and help them engage with the sport, I think there's a lot of potential there. Massive potential. I think because we've sort of seen the world open up just like more and more with however many more years we move into like a social media landscape it shows that players especially like female athletes especially can be such a product that's really marketed and when marketed well sell really really well and that kind of the stories that make a female athlete who they are like that holistic approach is probably a bit different to the way sport has historically been marketed when it was primarily men so it has, I think, seen a bit of a pivot, but it's a really cool pivot because it allows a bit more humanity to creep in when we report on sport and who, like, and who the sport audience is and who the the people playing the sport are. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. And just to have the the space now and the acceptance of you know reminding fans and you know real fans and the fans that I put in inverted commas 
yeah um people who call themselves fans but perhaps not behave as a fan should yeah um, yeah having having now those opportunities to share the stories of the person beyond the athlete the person that's who's off the field off the court what their story was before they were a household name um i think brings a little bit more empathy and like you said um you know it reminds people that they are a human too they're not just an athlete you know there's going to be times where they're not going to kick as many goals a game they're not going to get as many tackles a game as you as a so-called fan would like but you also have to remember there is a person behind all of your negative tweets and the the path that they took to get there so i think it brings back some of that humanity to sport as well definitely and i'm really enjoying the more coverage on those kind of issues um like whether reporters journalists are writing articles themselves or whether the players are actually speaking out because they now have often their own platform to be able to reach their audiences and reach mainstream media and say this is no longer acceptable <laughs> this is this is who i am this is who my friends slash teammates are and yeah as as humans please chill out a little bit audience slash fans spectators spectators that's what we can call them spectators yeah. because they're <laughs> They're watching the sport, they're commenting on the sport, but they're probably not as invested in the sport, the team or the athlete as a real fan would be. So mm, I think spectator yeah. is a good way to separate those two groups. Yeah, they just enjoy the critique sometimes, I think. Just a mm. little bit of a distraction. And like sport is always like a form of escapism for people and like an easy way to kind of, yeah, get out of, get out of current reality. I just think if we're then going and, sending a mean message to somebody to continue that escapism and take away from our own time and try and distract ourselves, that's when it gets a little bit dangerous and there should be a line, mm. like less entitlement over an athlete and their performance, I guess, not just entertainers for people to try and sort of use. Yeah, but the, there's definitely been an upswing in that sort of behaviour, particularly over the last few years. And... I'm not sure whether it's just because people have decided they're going to take the filter off or mm. if it's something else. It is. It's a tricky one, isn't it? And it's hard to provide like a numerical kind of calculation on it in terms of how much it, like if it has increased or if it's that kind of sort of hatred has already been out there, but now people just have an avenue to really funnel it mm. <laughs> directly to the people they're talking about. Yeah, a question on humanity, therefore. I'm like, I don't know. Far out. I think, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. There is a lot more activity on social media, and I think there's probably more a reliance on it too. So it increasing feels accurate, but also the fact that people are now feeling empowered enough to call it out also I think makes it feel even more increased than maybe it was when it was being really hidden by the people receiving that. Like there's a lot of shame around it sometimes. And so, and historically people have never, I've sort of protected the people saying it. So it's cool to be able to see it get released a little bit more and hold people accountable. Yeah. Well, and it's more like the accessibility everyone has to, to platforms and, you know, you don't have to, be a journalist for a major news outlet anymore you don't have to be an author with a, with a major publication house anymore because of the internet 
everything is accessible to everyone all the time and it's a real exercise in free speech i mean it's so easy to harp on the importance of free speech and then we have everything accessible to everyone all the time uh enabling that free speech and now we're kind of like actually i don't want to i don't want to listen to most of you <laughs> oh, i'm just gonna stay in an echo chamber yeah absolutely i'm like i'm always my biggest thing about freedom speech it's like freedom of speech yes but not freedom of like repercussions or consequences of what you're saying yes you yeah. can say it <laughs> but if it is dangerous or illegal then yeah you're going to have consequences right? like there's mm -hmm. i can punch someone in the face technically but that doesn't mean i'm actually allowed to do it i will have consequences mm -hmm. either being punched back or charged with assault or something <laughs> so i'm kind of curious about something that you said in there yes which was mm -hmm. before maybe people weren't calling out the bad behavior as much as they are now mm-hmm why do you think that? Why do I think that people are now calling out the behaviour more? Yeah. Mm. I think we're living, I keep repeating myself, but like an exciting time. Like I genuinely do think it's an exciting time as scary as it sometimes is as well <laughs> because it's like you have people swing sort of an opposite like counterculture. But an exciting time in the sense that there is a real shift in culture, I think. Like there's a shift away from like not, I wouldn't, like shame kind of manifests in a different way, but for a lot of it there's people sort of facing things that for a long time they've been shamed for. I'm really babbling, Paul. Oh, my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. Because I'm like, what am I even trying to say? I'm using a lot of words okay, and I'm so not really how about I, saying anything. How about I throw it out this way? Yes. I think one of the things that triggered people starting to push back yes. was the incident with Taylor Harris a couple of years ago mm -hmm. where, you know, there was some really awful comments, but then everybody came out of the woodwork to push back on the people who made those comments. Do you think that because that happened and so many people came out and, and started to push back against that sort of behaviour, do you think that gave particularly female athletes the confidence to be able to say, well, you know what, I can push back because there are people who are in our corner and who are vocally pushing back against that sort of behaviour? Yeah, I, I do. And that, and I still find it so complicated because it's sort of like what what has come first? Like have the female athletes themselves come first by putting themselves out there to then allow people who are like sort of in the spectator stand or the fans or whatever to go actually I care about this person or I care about what they represent being Taylor Harris in this situation and say so we no longer find that acceptable like we are a bit tired of the behavior that for so long has really dominated the sporting realm and I think wider society because we're seeing like so many female athletes come forward and really present themselves and represent each other but they're also representing like a wider community that has been underrepresented in all different facets of society being politics and art and all sorts so i think like that was definitely a real cultural moment but i feel like there have been so like little men like they're really accumulative and there are enough just like new generations coming through and again using the work of previous generations who ran the race and still run the race but like got to a certain point and that real emphasis of like you've carried and now it's a bit more of our turn to try and help shoulder that burden i think in every way in terms of being like actually at the forefront 
like Taylor Harris was, but also getting on the keyboard and commenting back. Like there's small revolutions in every reshare of a post or every time you comment back and saying, actually, little punk, I don't agree <laughs> with what you're saying and you're out of line here. Quiet down, pipe down. So, did that answer your question it, in any way? Yeah, it did. More words. Oh my gosh. It did. No, no. It, it, I mean, you are an author, so words are your thing. Oh, man. I'm so sorry to anybody listening. They must think, you know what? You pipe down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, let's talk about something totally different then, but, okay. but sort of related. Writing is generally a very solitary thing to do. Yes, you kind of sit is. down and like the scariest thing on earth is when you fire up the word processor, you're in front of an absolutely blank page. Yep. <laughs> right. And it's completely removed from team sports. Totally. It is. Yep. How do you make that work for yourself? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So my screenwriting course was a huge amount of collaboration, I'd say. Like a television, a lot of our projects when they were like a television series, you work with a lot of people and that's quite a collaborative process. Writing a script or writing a novel, there's always a huge amount of time spent on your own, which is sounds really different to sport, but there's actually so many parallels when you think there's team training and then there is so much time where you individually have to practice and work on yourself. So I think those kind of, like they're both interconnected in the way that they flip between a lot of extroversion needed and a lot of introversion and like introspective thought required as well. On top of that, they both need, or at least receive all the time, so much feedback. So that's another similarity in the sense of even if you're working on your own, ultimately you're waiting for a lot of critique to come your way to help you grow and help to get better. It's really fun. <laughs> Here's all the things you're doing wrong in all the different ways. <laughs> yeah, they're always like it's been two different parts of my identity and they've always felt so separate and so compartmentalised. I think I held them really separately and now all of a sudden I'm like, wow, they're kind of, different sides of the same the same coin they require similar strengths especially when you outline it like that because i was trying to make some connections between you know being a writer and an author and playing sport especially in that sense where like you said it's part collaboration part doing the work on your own mm. um but then I feel like, you know, when you're collaborating with a team of writers to write a TV script, which in my mind sounds a little bit anxiety provoking because <laughs> sharing ideas and agreeing on ideas for a script or a line or a theme of a show sounds hard, hard work. But yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you have to do that a lot on the basketball court. A lot of it is sound communication, collaborating, making compromises and making sure you're doing your role so that others can do their role the best. So I guess my question is, did you develop that skill as a player first and transfer it into your work as a writer or did you have it as a writer, you know, or as a young kid aspiring as a writer and put it into basketball? Hmm. I think sport probably came first in the sense of being able to receive feedback and critique 
like any little kid playing, like you're about seven years old and you're getting corrected and you're getting told this is the right way to do and that's a mistake and now be resilient, next thing, move on. That's why I honestly think every little kid should be involved in sport. Like that is one of the biggest things that help give life skills later on, regardless of what level you're competing at, to be able to work in a team or even if it's individual sport, to have the discipline and to be able to really move through failure and move through like different growth patterns. It is so, so helpful. So I think definitely sport made me resilient in a way that when I first started receiving feedback for writing, as horrific as it felt, I was also equipped with the skills to be able to weather it a little bit and reframe it to make it conducive to improvement as opposed to self-pity. Yeah, it's um, that's a really important skill, I think, that comes from sport that people don't realise, especially when you have the opportunity to play elite sport and you are coached as a team and then you're coached as an individual and the longer you play and the higher level you play, you are expected to be able to make those changes and adaptations very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, yeah, it's a really, really sound skill to transfer into the rest of your life, like riding. Um, and I think from what I've heard from some of my friends in the past who work in, say, the entertainment industry and you have retired athletes going into becoming TV presenters, there's such positive feedback around how quickly the, you know, the former athletes can adapt to a role like that just because they take that feedback and they just implement it straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably, compared to other emerging riders, Um, I think that's a really good skill to have in your back pocket if you want to get competitive about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a competition always. That is such an athlete thing to say, Santa. Look at you. Everything's a competition. That's so funny. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, I think also like sport and riding and really life in general inherently is about vulnerability, like to be able to perform in any way that is ultimately successful. You have to be vulnerable enough to put yourself out there. And so that's why, yeah, they do definitely strengthen each other. So I think the more that, a lesson for everybody, every listener out there, the more that we can be vulnerable, I think the more the more we move forward and sort of are able to, if not achieve what we want to achieve, at least live a quite happy, full, diverse life. And, yeah, the vulnerability is a great way to describe it because I've recently just randomly, I really enjoy TV and TV comedy and um, sketch shows and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I've recently been thinking about comedy writing, not in a sense that I want to be a comedy writer by any means. That just sounds like a very terrible decision for me to make. Um, (laughs) But um, just in a sense of, the layers that it requires to be able to accurately articulate something that is funny on paper, Mm. but then having the balls or the strength, I should say, to be in a writer's room. Hey, we're going to bring you and uh, five other prolific comedy writers in a room and you haven't met before and you're going to share your ideas of what's funny. Yeah. No, thank you. I'm sick that day. Yeah. Like that sounds so hard and so vulnerable. It is so vulnerable. It's so scary. Like so, so scary. And that like sport in a nutshell is also like here, go to a tryout and perform your skill set. All these players you don't know, play in a team, perform, try and get chosen. Like it's all the same sort of just with different variations, the same situation over and over and over until we get comfortable with it. 
Yep. And, you know, comedy is the hardest form of writing. Yeah. <laughs> comedy is scary. Comedy is really scary. Yep. It's really scary. We had we had a um, subject and comedy at university. And let me tell you, I was terrified the entire time. We also had to read it out to people. And I thought, I think I nearly cried. I think that was part of my, my humour, you know, the fear before I really set the scene so people took some pity on me. But, no, it is, yeah, scary. Yep. Scary, scary. There's a lot of... A lot of comedy is stemmed from tragedy and self-deprecation anyway, so you're probably already on a good, well, on yeah. A good path. Yeah, especially in Australia. We love we love that kind of humour. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Tell us true. how bad you are. Yeah. Well, what was it? As, yeah. um, Mel Brooks said, if I stub my toe, it's a tragedy. If you fall over and kill yourself, it's hilarious. Oh my god! Right? But for comedy, it's so true. It's like if it's happening yeah. to somebody else, it's hilarious. If it's happening to you, yeah. no, 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 that's no good at all. It's so funny. Yeah, that's true too, isn't it? Oh my so, god. what type of screenwriting were you most attracted to when you were doing at uni? Um, like, did you kind of workshop any potential TV ideas for when you had graduated? Yeah, I actually, funnily enough, was working on. A, um, it was a basketball drama, uh, <gasps> I know, set in Melbourne. It's basically set in the WNBL just because I'd never seen it happen and I really thought there's such a fruitful paddock to cultivate and I knew there was an audience for it. So that was kind of what I was marketing such pitching. We had to pitch our graduate projects at the end of the year. But as soon as I graduated, I then almost started converting it to a novel in essence but that was kind of it was drama that i was drawn to sort of identity and understanding life and love and all conflict all that all that fun stuff that makes us human on set against a basketball court great that's my pitch <laughs> now listen if you ever need uh some budding performers to yeah. shoot the pilot with some lived experience of being a basketball player uh, you know where to reach me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's what the other thing. I was like, I feel like even tapping into female athletes, like the, yeah, everyone is quite commercial. They're athletic, they're charismatic, they're articulate. There's a whole absolute women court, I keep saying field, but like there's a whole world of, yeah, real potential, potential success. Yep. Commercialism. Now, you know, we often ask unscripted questions so totally oh here we oh, go yeah. here we go and i'm scared no don't they're, they're safe they're safe questions <laughs> <laughs> so going along with the the screenwriting side of things yes if yep. you could be any oh, movie character oh goodness who would it be jesus that's a humongous question as well who would i be yeah. Far out. Who would I? Now you're really going to have to use the cut tool. Can I spend 15, 15 minutes? Sorry to Mary. Um, hello. Shout out to you. Um, who would I be? Oh my gosh. What's something that I loved recently? I'm trying to think. Paul, you're killing me. You are. You have so many answers when we finish yeah. recording, too. I know. And I literally can't think of a single one. I'm like, what am I like? There's been some really good Australian, like also like 
I'm going through the lens of Australian drama out of loyalty to the Australian industry, which always gets such a rough end of the stick when it comes to Australians talking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, we produce some incredible incredible art fund the arts in australia maybe on this list of some things that i've liked recently the cry wakefield go and watch australian drama everybody wakefield was excellent it was so good wakefield. wasn't it yeah yes wakefield was, was excellent so sick the newsreader that was on i think the abc that was bloody good as well can i say bloody yep. i just said yeah, bloody okay. so sorry we're talking about australian drama so you kind of have to anyway yeah right there's a there's a lot of australian colloquialisms in there what else i don't know does that answer your question not really in any way have i deflected enough for that to oh, be you've, accepted? you've deflected wonderfully <laughs> beautiful great thank you so thank you so much so also i'm just curious where are you at with your novel yes Great question. <laughs> Where am I at? Is my publisher? Hello, Aviva Tuffield. I'm so sorry. We're far. We're really, we're really deep in it. Um, we are chugging along. That is how I would best describe it. I've concluded the first draft and basically the way the second draft works is you get a lot of feedback, like you submit it and you get a lot of feedback. And the feedback is let's just change the part where you wrote anything at all. So that's where we're that's where <laughs> that's where we're that's where we're currently at. But it is exciting. Like there is some shape there. And I am really excited to finally just like get it more moving along. There's been a couple of distractions like with the signing with AFLW and then sort of like literary panels and stuff, which is all just so so fun. I'm like, do not be distracted, Sarade. Remember. <laughs> Remember what you have to do day to day. That probably answers your question. Yeah, yep, that's how far in I am. Chaos. Are you able? Are you able to give us any hints about what it's about, like uh, some themes or the general idea about what Flinch is about? Yeah, yeah. How would I describe it? So I describe it as literary fiction, and also like its genre is like new young adult. So young adult is primarily when you're 17, 18, like it's kind of high school age. And then adult is usually set like in 30s and plus. So this is sort of like in between those kind of genres where it's just like almost a second coming of age, I'd describe it as. But there's a whole new set of different things, like an experiences you're having for the first time. So I'm always fascinated by themes of like identity and love and what like I said conflict before but those kind of like the way we navigate interpersonal dynamics and because it is set like between basketball as well like a professional basketball team there's so there's so much ground to really explore the way we connect with people and disconnect and yeah in amongst a in a really like high stakes environment so that's how I would describe. Is that giving any hints, Jacinta? Is that yeah? That's plenty of that hints. Cool? That's enough to whet my appetite to <laughs> make sure I pre-order it when it's ready. <laughs> well, people ask me that question, and I just babble. Like all I need to do is just say one cool, calm sentence, and instead I'm like, "Yeah, have <laughs> have as much noise as you can hear in thirty seconds." Um, side question I just want yes. to ask really quick. If you're, yeah. you know, you indicated you have an interest in uh, a person's identity with themselves and the world and then in relationships, mm -hmm. uh, do you therefore enjoy watching those dating reality shows because <laughs> while they seem so superficial on the surface, I they're my guilty pleasure for that reason where I'm like, hey, 
You can actually learn a lot about a person's identity and behavior when they're put in that situation. And that's the thing that fascinates me the most. It's so funny. I think, yeah, definitely the psychology behind those kind of, sh that's why they sell. That's why mm. when people say, oh, reality television, we also did a subject of reality television at screenwriting class. And mm. so much of it was how it's a narrative and how it just uses the exact same tropes as if you're writing the most like attention grabbing drama, basically. So I just seem to have to really try and avoid reality television. Otherwise I really get sucked in. But so many of my friends, there's a couple of like dating reality shows recently that they've been at me to go and watch and I have to be really strong and say stop it stop trying to tempt me because I don't have enough time in my day for this and I will end up trying to watch all of it but like something like I'm a celebrity I love because it really shows a different side of the people on there and I find it really heartwarming the way they bond with each other like that's my that's one show that I really survive is scary I don't like people manipulating each other or lying to each other the Bachelorette or The Bachelor is sometimes similar and everyone's a little bit like there's always a villain edit, but I feel like the way that they edit I'm a Celebrity is like fall in love with all of these people and I say, okay, I will. I'm there for that. Australia let us let us now bond, bond with all of these random celebrities. So I, I want to ask you something about the screenwriting. Do you yeah. find now that when you sit down to watch a movie – Mm -hmm. unconsciously you're sitting down and you're picking apart the movie to the three-act structure when's the inciting incident what mm -hmm. you know the whole the whole Sid Field thing yeah I do <laughs> and, it, and it's it, it like can be quite painful especially if the movie a lot of the time I'm just in complete awe of like the way it's created I'm like wow like yeah, there's some really talented, some plenty of talented writers out there. Other times, if it's a little bit less like that, <laughs> for want of a more diplomatic way of saying that, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's when it's very predictable, it's a little bit hard to sit through. <laughs> but I think even as a child, I sort of, because I love to read so much, there was a little bit of an instinct for storytelling. So I always used to be being like, okay, now this is going to happen. Now this is going to happen. And I regularly was quite right. And so even though I was never interested in screenwriting, I always thought it was books. It was kind of funny how I ended up, like I fell into the screenwriting course because it, it felt quite fitting. But, yeah, I think sometimes I must be a pest to watch a movie with because it's hard. It's hard to not <laughs> analyse the absolute bejeebas out of it. Sometimes people ask me if when I watch basketball for leisure or recreationally, whether it's local or on TV, they say, oh, so do you just like commentate the game in your head? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm able to watch it as a fan, but because I'm able Enjoy. to watch it as a fan on a deeper level, that's what made me a commentator. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so good. But do you think when you watch it, you're still kind of evaluating? Because I think if I watch basketball, a part of me is still like, oh, the ball needed to swing that way or that person wasn't far enough on split line. Do you still find yourself doing that? Yes, always. I'm naturally always an analytical person anyway, and I like to see what's going on and the parts to it and, and the why. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, even when I watch basketball, I'm still like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. They've dropped into a 2-3 zone after yeah. a score. Um, <laughs> but for me, that's the enjoy. That's what makes basketball enjoyable is those 
uh, variables and intangibles like that. So I'm mm. always going to be thinking like that regardless. Yeah. Um, but the downside of that too is if nothing's happening in the game and it's boring and I'm not finding it almost intellectually stimulating, I'll probably leave at half time. Yeah. I walk no, out of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that is impressive because I do not have the ability to do that. I'm like, oh, here we are to the end. The very siren, 50 points difference. I'm still bloody here. <laughs> Help me. The downside though when you have to commentate those games, you can't walk out at halftime. You have to stay and try and make it entertaining and interesting. And I was like, what can I pick uh, apart well, that's, from this? That's You're when you have to go to a totally different topic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Ted Lasso comes yeah, well, into it. Or like that oh, You when um, Rach and Kean were um, were commentate, did 15 minutes on whether it should be a bun or a ponytail. That's so funny. Yeah, was uh, there was a time uh, Rach Herrick and I did a Waratah final, I think it was 2019, I think, and it was an unexpected blowout in the grand final between Norths and Canberra, and Canberra had Gazy, Keely Froling and Abby Cabillo playing for them, and they were, no, sorry, it was Newcastle and Canberra in the final. Newcastle mm. played the best game of their lives and just yeah. blew out Canberra. It's like, what are we going to talk about? So we, Rach started, and I started having a chit-chat and someone complained on Facebook about, we want to hear about basketball, we don't want to hear about your social chit-chat. Oh. It's like, well, can you, can you tell your daughter's team to, you know, cut back at this 30-point deficit and we'll give you something to talk exactly. about. Exactly. You're welcome for the entertainment. Yeah. For free. <laughs> for free. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it, look, it's true. You know, you, you get to a point where you, you're looking at it, it's, there's nothing to talk about. It's like... How many yeah. times can you say, yes, they've run down the other end of the court, they've scored two, they've scored three, there's been a, a foul, they're going to the free throw line. It's kind of like, okay, we've got to talk about something else, anything else, just to keep yeah. people engaged. Yeah, it's a long game. <laughs> and these are the changes that the team needs to make to get back in the lead. Yeah. And then two quarters later, they still haven't made those changes. <laughs> still the same changes they need to make. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. We're hoping. Yeah. Oh, my Broken goodness. record. <laughs> Sarade, it's been great having you on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to when your novel does get published. Hopefully it's not too far off. And, Hopefully. Fingers crossed. And we're really looking forward to seeing how the AFLW season pans out for you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for having me. It has been a fun chat. I hope I haven't babbled too much. No, it's been great. It has been good. It has been. I certainly enabled the babbling, so don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we were all conducive to the Absolutely. babble. We all, yeah, we all played a part. Definitely. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.